standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. In this episode, two brilliant women get together to talk balls, footballs to be precise, and, spoiler alert, one of those women is me. Am I tooting my own horn here? Yes, indeed. Do I care? No, I do not, because listeners of the podcast will by now be in absolutely no doubt that my first ever book, The Year of the Robin, is due to be published next week on June the 9th, to be precise. And I'm just a little bit excited about it. In this episode, I'm joined by friend of the podcast and indeed of myself, Dr. Carrie Dunn, who is no stranger to writing books about football, having written approximately a squillium. She's got a new book, Unsuitable for Females, which was published on June the 2nd. So we got together to talk about our respective publications, being women football writers and where the women's game is at as we look ahead to the upcoming Euros this summer. Obviously, I love Carrie. But what she doesn't know about the women's game isn't worth knowing. So I hope you enjoy soaking up some of her wisdom. God knows I've tried over the years. I am joined by friend of the podcast, author of a squillion books, including the new book, Unsuitable for Females, Dr. Carrie Dunn. Hello, Carrie. How are you doing? Hello. Thank you very much for joining me today. You're here to talk to me about Unsuitable for Females. And the title alludes to the famous announcement, I guess, made by the FA in Bunny Ears banning women from playing football in 1921? That's correct, Correct. yeah. Right, well, well done me. I've successfully memorised a date. Anyway... It is an excellent name for a book, Carrie. It is an excellent name and it is an excellent book. Can you please start off by telling me a little bit about it? So the idea is that when I was doing my two previous books, my most recent books, Roar of the Lionesses and Pride of the Lionesses, people kept asking me a little bit more about the history because I've mentioned kind of in passing about the FA's ban on women's football. And it kind of grew more and more obvious that no matter how much I kind of mentioned the ban, people still were not aware that women's football was basically outlawed by the FA for half a century. So I thought I'm going to do a book doing pen portraits of the people who basically kept women's football going uh, through that half century and beyond, the ones who popularised it at the start of the 20th century and the ones who kept it thriving during the FA's ban, and the ones who took it back to prominence, I guess. We talk so much about these pioneers of the 21st century, the ones that have kind of uh, caught public attention and been on television and doing co-commentary and punditry and things now. But the ones before that, the ones in the 80s and the 90s, and the ones who have just missed out on the popularity of the Women's Super League, it's really important to tell those stories too. So... I have collected together just some of these stories in a series of pen portraits to keep some of this history alive, I guess. I wonder how you feel, and maybe this is a question you can answer, I wonder how those people feel to have just missed out on that, you know, because some some of them have an opportunity in that they come back as pundits or they come back as coaches or or whatever because the game is big enough now to you know you you can be paid to have a career in football as a woman in a variety of different ways now but I wonder how they feel about Mm. having just kind of missed you know the the sort of the glory bit of it 
Absolutely. It's funny because I do, I do ask if the opportunity presents itself, if I think it is appropriate. Like, do you regret having missed out on that? I mean, mm. are you not, not bitter, but do you ever kind of resent a little bit that you see these players getting the opportunities that you would have absolutely been desperate to have when you were that age? And pretty much they always say, no, they're happy to have played when they did. A lot say they wouldn't have liked to have played now for various reasons, that increased media attention, for example, or they were happy in their careers. They liked kind of the amateurism of it sometimes. They liked the camaraderie that they had with their friends down the football club, which they don't think that they would get now. And I can understand that. But interestingly, I was actually going to ask you the same thing because... (laughs) In your excellent book, The Year of the Robin, you talked to Karen Hills, yes. um, now the Charlton Athletic women's manager, but who previously coached at Spurs. And that generation of players that she's part of too, they just missed out on everything. Mm. And I think they have such important perspectives on the women's game that I do think get overlooked a little too much. And I thought she was fascinating the way that you wrote about her. What did you make of her? Karen Hills is interesting from a Charlton Athletic perspective because she played for Charlton in Charlton's glory days as a women's team. Because, you know, I think a lot of people probably don't know that Charlton Mm. Athletic, the women's team, were really the, you know, it was Charlton and Arsenal. They were the ones that were winning everything for the sort of early 2000s era of, of when women's football was just sort of becoming a bit more popular. It was a point in which you could very occasionally watch women's FA Cup finals and things like that on the BBC. And and so Karen was part of that team, the team that basically got shafted by the club when mm. the club is quite sort of well known within people who take an interest in such things. But for anyone who doesn't, the club basically, the men's team got relegated from the Premier League in 2006 and the women's team got immediately shut down basically just sort of jettisoned like oh we can't afford you anymore sorry because we haven't got the Premier League dollar rolling in but one of the points you made when I spoke to you for the book as well is that you know the the sort of money that you would save at that point in time when none of those women were professional they were getting like maybe a hundred quid per match appearance if they actually played the the cost of running a, a women's football team at the time even at that you know upper end would just negligible so how much money were you actually going to save probably like really not a lot and so that team at the time uh Enia Luco played for them Katie Chapman I don't know if she played for them then but she'd been through there uh Casey Stoney played for them like really really big names of the sort of modern game and they all just effectively lost their jobs just like see you later off you go and obviously for some of them, it worked out really well. But the Charlton Athletic women's team has not really ever recovered from that. It's certainly mm. not returned to those glory days. We're about sort of mid-table obscurity in the second division now, the championship. But basically, so Karen was part of that setup, And then obviously after that, she basically, she just decided to retire quietly from the game, basically, and just sort of went off quietly and Mm. didn't play football anymore because she was coming to the end of her career anyway and she just sort of thought, well, you know, that's that then. But she became a coach. As you said, she coached Spurs for a while and she's been brought in under the new owner um, of Charlton Athletic to kind of really professionalise the team because it hasn't been run in a professional way 
ever this is the first time because for a lot of a lot of women's teams this is the first time that they are running in a professional way right so I thought she was fascinating I thought what she said Mm. about was fascinating and I thought what she said about the modern game was fascinating as well and I remember speaking to Emma Hayes almost 10 years ago now and, and she sort of had the same kind of view I think as Karen which is not so much like there's a lot of comparisons made between men's and women's football the thing that Emma Hayes said to me was like why do we have to keep making these endless comparisons why can't we just appreciate them for like the different products that they are Mm. and I've always found that a bit like a bit difficult like I find it almost a bit problematic but I can see more and more like what she's talking about I think because it's I think from a feminist perspective it's genuinely a bit of a quandary isn't it because on one hand you're like well why shouldn't we have what the men have and then on the other you're a bit like but is what we have with the men a bit shit I don't know (laughs) it's difficult and I think I think it's problematized and I think it's difficult to get our heads around still because we think about football and women's football Mm. we still think of men's football as a default if we thought about men's football as men's football Mm. and then women's football as women's football I think it would be easier to kind of make that distinction and understand them as different products with different kind of benefits different advantages different things drawing different sets of fans to it Mm. but I'm not sure that demarcation is made I think there's so much concentration and emphasis on this kind of one club perspective like if you support one team you should support the other Mm. which isn't the case and hasn't been the case historically in women's football. I mean, I've done research projects on the fans of women's football and quite a lot of fans tend to just follow like one player, for example, or they'll kind of latch onto one team for a particular season for X, Y, Z, odd reason, but they won't be interested in the men. I mean, I'm, you know, I've had the same. I I had an Arsenal women's season ticket for a little while because I was living relatively Mm. close by I'm not an Arsenal fan. I'm not an Arsenal men fan, but it was the closest women's football team to me. So I bought a season ticket and I went along when I wasn't writing about women's football. So I think there is an overemphasis on trying to kind of superimpose a men's football understanding of the entire sport on women's football. And I think when you try and break out of it or you try and suggest let's try and treat it as a product by itself. It's difficult to get your head around it. And it was the case when Emma Hayes said it to you 10 years ago. And it's still the case now when Karen Hills is saying it to you now. Mm. It's, do you know what you, what you just said there is really interesting because I, like most human beings, I hate Chelsea, right? I fucking hate Chelsea men's team. I hate them so much. But I, I don't feel the same about the women's team. I really don't. And I think that is mostly because of Emma Hayes, because what's not to love about Emma Hayes? Yeah, and I think I think there's an element of tribalism coming into the women's game now, and I think that's kind of being encouraged by clubs and the mm. competition and the authorities. And, you know, I get that. I mean, capitalising on existing club loyalties is the easiest way to build up your fan base. Mm. I do think it means that you lose some of the special character that we have had in women's football in recent years, but perhaps that's part of the price of progress. I don't know. I could just be a dinosaur. This is this what it might be now, Jen. I think I'm just getting old. Isn't tribalism one of the worst things? I would football? say so. It's one of the things that I hate most about men's football. I hate the tribalism. I hate the stupidity of it. And I hate the monetary side of it. But unfortunately, when you're 
working in a capitalist society, there's probably not a lot else you can choose to do. If you want to make money, which you have to do to survive, then that's the quickest and easiest way to do it. I've never really thought of it like that, that they make money from those rivalries. What, because they massively, you know, hype them up and and people are sort of more interested than maybe they should be about a really, really tenuous derby like I've always thought I know I know they're both roughly the same location but like I've always thought that Manchester United and Liverpool just why what's the point well that is the case yeah I mean that is the case particularly in the women's game because they don't really come up against each other obviously they will do now and Liverpool have been promoted Mm. but that rivalry that's obviously stemmed from decades of you know, matches in the men's game isn't there for the women's game, but they're trying to kind of make that happen now. And we saw it again when the, with the matches in the in the in the men's stadia. They're, they're picking the local derbies. Go, Come on, support the girls yeah. against our hated city rivals. And you know that's the way to fill your seats. So I write in the in the year of the robin. I talk about like some of the quote unquote rivalries that we have that I just I can't be bothered with. I don't have any like there is no point and me feeling some sort of animosity towards Crystal Palace fans because we've no. played each other like three times in the last 10 years or something. Like, what is the point? Or Millwall, same thing. Also, I'm a bit yeah. frightened of Millwall fans. So, like, there's... Everyone's frightened of Millwall fans. Exactly. But, again, no, no real reason, to be honest. Well, I mean, historically, they've got a bit of a rep. It's the history, isn't it? Yeah. It's not anything that you've ever seen yourself, probably. No, and also, Scroobius Pip supports Millwall. And he's lovely, so, you know. Yeah, rivalry is an interesting thing because I grew up as a Luton fan and their local rivals are Watford. Mm. And when I was a kid, Watford were not in the same division as Luton. Mm. We just didn't play each other, so it literally meant nothing to me. And then when they were both in the same division, when I was kind of like late teenager, and I was just like, this is ridiculous. Why are you grown men getting so hyped up about this one match against these people who are just down the road? You work with these people every day. You go to school with these people. You drink in a pub with these people. Why are you behaving like this? I, I hate it. Always hated it. I was actually going to ask you a little bit about some of the stuff that you write in Year of the Robin about kind of the elements of the personal that you hmm. include in it. Because I find a lot of it very moving. It actually made me cry in the middle of this cafe in places. And I kind of wanted to ask how you decided what you included and what you wanted to keep private. Because the first book that I wrote, this was when Luton got promoted, so back in 2002. So it was a little bit like yours in that it was first person and it was following a season. Mm. And I regret quite a lot of what I wrote about now, not because of what it was, but because of the reaction that I got Mm. from it. And I was clearing out something recently and I found something I'd written a year after the book came out and I'd completely forgotten how horrible some men were at the time, simply because I was a young woman writing about loving football. (laughs) I remembered that the ironic thing was that I was a home and away girl. I would be all around the country. And not long after my book came out, a man published a similar book. He didn't go to pretty much most of the matches and he got praised by these guys for his coverage of the local music scene in his book. Mm. And I was like, imagine if a woman had had the temerity to write a whole book about a season she had pretty much missed. So I was kind of thinking about how I would probably have done things differently with you know, 20 years of hindsight. But I wondered how you kind of self-selected your material because I know that there's things that you've picked and chosen to write about and what did you decide to include? Um, 
It's basically everything. I decided to include everything. I'm a gobshite and I uh, <laughs> I just sort of say stuff and then think about it afterwards and, and uh, I hope that it will all be okay. I don't know. I just, I think like on the podcast, we're always pretty open about our lives. We talk about a lot of stuff, personal things. It just didn't really occur to me not to write about it. There's stuff about my daughter obviously that I don't necessarily go into details about because you know she'll be a grown human one day and that will all be in the public domain about her so Mm -hmm. but I do talk a little bit about her poos as a small uh she she might not be wildly happy about when she's say you know maybe not 18 or whatever but yeah there's stuff that's not for me to be writing about I think but all the other stuff I don't know like obviously my brother it's it's about my brother a lot as well and he's read it you know given his sign off as it were on it I think some of it makes him feel a little bit uncomfortable but he is kind of like well all of this stuff is actually true so (laughs) you're not you're not like slandering me or anything it's just that's that's just who I am and maybe I feel a bit uncomfortable about (laughs) obviously I know that there will be some people who will take issue with it and will be unpleasant about it. But I think when you're a woman who writes about football, you always know that's going to happen anyway. So I guess I hope that people won't be too mean. And I guess I hope that if they are mean, they're mean to me, (laughs) not anyone else I'm related to. I've tried to do it just from a like, assume everything's fine and no one's going to be a shitbag about it. But thanks for that. Maybe I'll come to regret I, I haven't read back on my first book in 20 years. Mm. So, you know, there's that. You'll write 10 others and you won't remember it anymore. I can only hope that I write as many books as you, squillion book writer, <laughs> Dr. Carrie Dunn. That is interesting. So people were really mean to you, were they? They were, but I, this was kind of a time before social media per se. It was mm. mostly kind of message boards and mailing lists and stuff. So it was... I kind of think there's almost more anonymous than social media stuff because people could just like use different names to write mm. the message boards. But I remember talking to one of these guys. I, I met him after he'd written this stuff on the message board. So he must have been somebody who wasn't using a pseudonym. And I remember he emailed me a few months after that. And he was like, I've reread your book and I like it much more now that I know that you're a real fan. And I'm like, you would never say that to a man. You would never, ever ask or expect a man to prove his fandom to you and talk to them like that. And I I guess also it's because I was was pretty young at the time as well. So perhaps it was also kind of precocious young woman rather than just being a young woman. But people are dicks is what it comes down to. I think the thing that worries me a little bit is that Charlton fans might not like it. Mm. So like a diehard Charlton fan is not going to appreciate where I come to on my position on Lyle Taylor, for example. And a diehard Charlton fan is maybe not going to like the fact that I say I don't give a shit about the rivalry with Crystal Palace. It doesn't bother me. Possibly, but then I think you've got to kind of accept that not everyone is going to agree with everything you write all the time. You know that yeah, from no. your other stuff that you've done. Of course, but I guess the I guess when you write a book like that, you sort of want it to be something that other fans can take something from you know but I think you've got that regardless I mean you're talking about your own perspective but you've also got 
other stuff that I think they'll quite happily latch on to. I mean, certainly some of the history stuff and the guys in the museum and that kind of thing. Mm. But let's talk about Lyle Taylor because mm. we spoke about this before you actually spoke to him yeah. as we were, we were trying to nail him down for his interview. And we were both kind of quite expectant, I guess, about what he might be like. Mm. And then you came out of it and you're like, that was quite surprising. And now having read it as you've written it up, I came out rather liking him as well. But I do know it's easy to like someone when you're talking to them. With a little bit of hindsight now, having had a chance to mull it over, how how do you feel about Lyle Taylor in general? Well, Lyle Taylor has read his chapter to, you know, to obviously so that he could say to me, I'm not going to sue you, it's all right, basically. <laughs> You've not <laughs> taken me out of context and, and I'm not going to sue you. Lyle Taylor really surprised me. So for anyone listening to this who's unaware, Lyle Taylor was like the star striker, if you will, uh, at Charlton Athletic for a couple of seasons. He basically got us promoted, not completely, you know, not on his own, but he scored a lot of goals for us. And then he, after the coronavirus suspension of football, if you will, and then the project restart, he had his eye on a move elsewhere and he said he wasn't going to play for the club because technically his contract was up. And this is one of the weird things that we had with Project Restart is that footballers were not obliged to play the last bit of the season, but they could under a contract extension if they wanted to. Anyway, Lyle Taylor's contract was up and he chose not to play for Charlton. We all know how the story ends. Unfortunately, Charlton were relegated and we were relegated by, as people like to say, one goal. It's all a bit more complicated than that, but... It was, in the end, like one last-minute goal by... God, I can't even remember who it was. It was someone really shit. It was Barnsley, I think. And, yeah, so everyone sort of says, well, Lyle Taylor would have scored a goal for us if he'd played in that last bit, so, you know, it's his fault. I mean, I thought that was bollocks anyway because there's very clearly a very specific set of circumstances that season that caused what happened to happen. But I did have very bad feelings about Lyle Taylor at the end of that season. I did think, you know, I, I felt that it was a very clear example of all of the shit things that you hear about male footballers all the time. Like, oh, he's like lazy and oh, he's greedy and oh, he's this and oh, he's that and blah, blah, blah. I I fully subscribe to that theory about Lyle Taylor and I spoke to him and yeah, I did not feel that way about him after I spoke to him. And you're right, I think it is easy to feel if someone has bothered to take the time to talk to you and tell you their side of the story or whatever, like it is in a way, I don't know, I guess they make you feel a bit special, don't they? So it's Mm. it is in a way easy to be like, Well, okay, I you know, whatever. But I just thought that everything he said was really sensible. And, you know, politically, a lot of the stuff he's put into the public domain on various social media channels, I really, really was like vehemently against. And again, when I spoke to him, actually, he gave a really good account of himself. And I did feel very differently about him. And I have exchanged a few emails with him since then about the book. And he does not appear to be the person that I thought he was. He just does not give me that impression at all. But the same with Lee Bowyer. Like, Mm. I did not think, not that I would like Lee Bowyer, but I did not think he was going to be anywhere near as intelligent and funny and actually, like, kind of a bit charming as he was. I had a very enjoyable hour-long chat with Lee Bowyer and I came out of it being like, do you know what? 
he was a nice guy. I had a nice chat with him. It's not how I expected to feel at all at all. So I don't know. I think we have to kind of take the theatre of football yeah. with a bit more of a pinch of salt, perhaps. Are you basically telling me football is like wrestling? But it, it really is, though, isn't it? Like, it is. <laughs> it is. Like, I think it, is. It, it totally is. I think I write this in the book as well. Having stepped back a little bit because Charlton are no longer in the Premier League and haven't been for a very long time, I enjoy the Premier League so much more as someone who doesn't have a vested interest in the outcome of it. And I do just see it really as like a soap opera and I enjoy the story arcs of a particular season. Like watching Mourinho lose his mind, like watching Mourinho unravel is like always a great storyline, right? And which random little team is doing better than expected or like which previous giant is crumbling and blah, blah, blah. Like I enjoy those story arcs and I do just find it a bit like a soap opera, really. So it is much more enjoyable when you don't actually care about the outcome of it, I think. But you don't support a men's football team. So maybe you feel the same. I don't know. Or maybe you just don't really give a shit about it at all. I think, yes, it's more the latter in that I but I'm not I'm not vested in it at all. So I can kind of step back from it and I don't miss it. But then I can kind of dip into it. And I haven't really missed anything because you can pick up the threads of the soap opera yeah. quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. Because they repeatedly tell you what they are. So it's like the recap at the start of an episode. Yeah. And it's not like Hollyoaks either. It's not like a rapid turnaround. It's, it's No, like no, it's just the same. <laughs> long, long storylines that go on Something for familiar, years and yeah. years and years. Like, why are Arsenal not in the top four? Because they're not... <laughs> good enough to be in the top four anymore it's a cyclical thing get over it how many years must we continue this arsenal aren't in the top four anymore it has been years now forever i think forever i think that's just gonna be it now until the dying of the sun it's so boring Carrie, I would like to talk to you more about your book, please, because I'm really enjoying this chat. But um, I would like to ask you about, because obviously it is a history book, basically. Mm. It's the history of women's football. How difficult was it on a sort of practical level to research it? How much information actually exists about these people? Oh, Jen, it's so difficult. So difficult because... The the opening chapters, as, as you'll have seen from the start of the 20th century, um, a lot of the women players in those early years played under pseudonyms. So you cannot track them down because they weren't playing under their real names. So even where there's paperwork and programmes where their names are listed, those weren't their real names. And so it's really, really difficult to track them down. And then if they did have their own names, you have the archival problem that you always get with women is that if they get married and change their name, it's then difficult to trace where they are if you don't know who they've married. So you then have struggles of trying to pinpoint which is this person who was born in this place and was playing for this team. Is she the same one who has the same first name but a different last name, playing nearby five years later, et cetera, et cetera. So there are some absolutely wonderful hobby historians, I guess, although... They've just made a life's work of it. So people like Stuart Gibbs, who I talked to in the book, there's also a fantastic website that I draw in a lot of stuff in terms of pictures and the links to the newspaper reports. And of course, I went through the British newspaper archives for some of the stuff as well. But it's really hard, really hard to trace a lot of those very early players. And once we get past the 
mid 1960s it's easier to start tracking players down mostly kind of word of mouth quite a lot of the time so um I got in touch with some of the lost lionesses for my last book. So these are the girls who went to the unofficial Mexico Women's World Cup in 1971. So this was not an officially sanctioned tournament and they were all banned from playing for a little while afterwards. And the manager who took them there was banned for life. But these girls who were there in Mexico, they have just been basically ignored by the authorities up until the past couple of years. And I got in touch with a couple of them and they got me in touch with some more. So that's kind of how that's worked. And they are absolutely fascinating in that some of them went back to playing after Mexico, after they've served their bands, because fascinatingly, because this Mexico World Cup took place in the summer, it was an August tournament. And the manager, Harry Batt, his usual team, Chilton Valley, was made up of a lot of grown-up women who had jobs. And they could not get six, six weeks off work to go to Mexico. So he ended up picking his representative British team um, from basically a bunch of schoolgirls. So these girls I'm talking to now were 13, 14, <laughs> 15 when they were in Mexico for a month and a half. And I'm like, wow, did you not think about this at the time? Did you not think, wow, this is amazing? They were like, not really. I think about it now. And I think it was you know, 50 years on. Did you not kind of think, oh, yeah, I'm going to be away from mum and dad for six weeks? Because obviously there's, you couldn't, you couldn't have phoned them as easily. Well, I said, boy, how did you get permission to go? And Harry Batt and his wife went to each set of parents and explained kind of, you know, how they'd be looked after and gave them the flight details and everything. Yeah, they were very well looked after. They had their kind of pastoral care and everything. But it just seems absolutely incredible. And the fact that these women didn't talk about this experience for basically 50 years until, you know, it was started to be recognised by UEFA and by the FA. And they started to talk about this lost World Cup that... Everyone's ignored since 1971. How did they pay for that? Well, that's another thing. So you mentioned it yourself when you're talking about Charlton. Up until very, very recently, players were basically paying for for their own travel whenever they went anywhere. Even the first official England teams, they were paying for their their, their travel. Um, I talked to Wendy Owen, who was one of the first England players, and she was like, yeah, we'd have to get our money together. There, there were certain allowances for girls who weren't working, so girls who were still at school or girls who were studying, but you would have to pay your travel costs, like your accommodation costs, and the FA would pay a little bit. And even at the club level, you'd be paying your subs. I talked to Vic Akers, the famous former mm. Arsenal women manager, later in the book, and they were talking about the subs book that they had up until kind of the middle of the 2000s. So players would be turning up to training with Vic Akers at the uh, Highbury J- J- JVC Centre, taking the subs, ticking it up in the book, because you still had to pay to play. And not paying to play is a, is a, is a very, very recent development. So you found out some quite surprising information it's like some quite I don't know generally accepted truths were just were not true or not necessarily as true as it might have been believed they were I wondered if there was anything that you found particularly surprising like did you learn anything over the course of your research that you were like bloody hell that's incredible I imagine probably quite a few things but so much stuff I mean 
every single person that I spoke to just has an incredible story. And I could write an entire book about each of these players or coaches or administrators about their their time in the game. I guess I find it incredible that we have progressed pretty far in in a very short space Mm. of time in recent years. I guess I find it a little, I've kind of hinted at this, I find it a little bit galling that kind of pre-2011 players are not given the recognition that perhaps they should be. But perhaps that's starting to change now. I see that the former England captains are going to get a plaque on the wall. Uh, I think it's at St George's Park. We saw Jill Coulthard, who captained England at World Cups and uh, had over 100 caps. You know, she's get, uh, She got in her MBE at the last New Year's Honours list. So you know things are starting to change. We're starting to acknowledge that these generations of women were still playing football, even if people weren't watching them do it. It's just, I don't know, it's, it's, an, it's an amazing history. And I guess I don't really like the use. It is a useful shorthand to say women's football was banned, but it wasn't banned. It was just the FA saying, you can't play, which I suppose is a ban from playing within an FA remit. Mm. But women were still playing football. It wasn't like 1921 happened. They wrote this memo and women went, oh, fair dues, pat and boots up, we won't play. They carried on playing. They were playing on parks and scrublands and rugby pitches. And if men affiliated to the FA, so players or coaches or administrators were helping these women, they would get banned as well. So men helping women at that time knew that they were running a risk, certainly of jettisoning their own football career. But these women were organising their own teams. And they had male allies helping them in some places too. But they were basically organising themselves up until the FA finally took everything in-house at the start of the 1990s. So that's 70 years of women organising their own football competitions with pretty much no help whatsoever. And it's easy for us to say, oh, no, women's football was banned. It wasn't banned. It was just being neglected and ignored, and we've decided to pretend that it never happened. But it's basically a, a secret history, an ignored history, and an invisibilized history, perhaps. Well, not anymore, obviously, thanks to your book. I wanted to ask you, did you have, it's probably quite hard to pick, but did you have like a favourite historic figure from the game? Did you have anyone that you were like, you're just, <laughs> you're the best, I love you? Oh, there are so many of them, though. So many. I talked to all these incredible women and... I talked to this one amazing woman who played for the Manchester Corinthians in the 1960s. That's kind of a really big independent women's team. And they basically toured the world. And she was just incredible. And she talked about her footballing career and how she set up another club uh, after she hung her boots up at Corinthians. And then she started to stop playing football and she started running. She ran like marathons and half marathons. And she went like climbing Kilimanjaro and stuff. I was just like, you are just the most amazing woman. If I am half as active when I am your age, I shall be so happy. And it's just stories like that, I guess. But I suppose these stories of the people that are here to tell the stories about that difficult time in football would have to be very, very determined people. They're going to be very special people, no matter where they are in their lives now. And they have to be special people to keep women's football alive. So I guess all those stories are, are, are pretty, pretty exciting. I was just thinking about what you said before. Sorry, just to go back to that quickly about how it wasn't banned and actually just women were getting on with it and just organising it themselves and whatever. And I was just like, isn't that just life as a woman, just quietly getting on with it, getting your shit together, 
getting stuff done, but without any of the recognition or glory. <laughs> Absolutely, it's um, what, it's what I recall from my uh, from my English degree as um, as the shit work is what, uh, what a particular <laughs> linguist used to call it. So, and that's what women do in conversation as well. They do the stuff that kind of keeps conversation going. They do the yeses, and we go mm hmm mm hmm, and we encourage people to talk, and we ask the questions. Because otherwise, you know, it will be awkward and we want things to be awkward. We want things to be nice for everyone. So, yeah, women get on and do the hard work and then men turn up and say, it's OK, ladies, you've done great. We'll take over from here. <laughs> <laughs> you've done a lovely job. Now piss off. So I wanted to ask you, sort of coming up to the present day, we are about to, as this goes out, we are all getting ready for the women's euros and i wanted to ask you a little bit about this because this is a question that i always ask you basically which is and i always ask everyone when i ask them about women's football like are we really doing as well as we think we are and one of the things that i noticed about the women's euros which i was a bit like that is very curious isn't it as with any international competition we've got venues around the country because the women's euros are happening in england and the venues are, I think, very strange choices. <laughs> very strange choices. And to me, suggest that the organisers are not that confident about the number of tickets they can sell. It's an eclectic range of stadia being used, isn't it? So they kind of range from Wembley, like down to like Lee Sports Village and the Manchester City Academy. It is kind of a ludicrous array of stadia, um, <laughs> some of which are quite difficult to access via public transport. Lee Sport Village is not a great one. I mean, I guess you can only award games to the places that want to host them. So, you know, if people have said, we'll host them here and they put their bid in and they were good bids, then that's why they've been awarded. And that isn't to criticise any of the grounds. Of course, they're not bad grounds. They're perfect for the Women's Super League. But I guess you would also have to say, as you hinted there, one would also rather hope for bigger attendances than those capacities and more infrastructure. The the Academy Stadium has a capacity of 4,700. Brentford Community Stadium has a capacity of about 17,000. 17,000 is not, it's not bad, but that's... It, it's not Old Trafford, is it? If we had a men's Euros, you would expect matches to be at the Emirates. You'd expect them to be at Old Trafford. You'd expect them to be... It's a difficult one, yeah. I mean, it does suggest that the approach was somewhat cautious, I would say. I guess they're taking the tack that they would rather have these smaller grounds completely sold out and really noisy atmospheres uh, rather than having, you know, a half-full Old Trafford. But you give the tickets away, don't you? That's that, like what you do is if you if you can't sell them, you just give loads and loads of them away. Well, you do. But then is that a good thing? Again, I think you, you've hinted at this yourself. If you're giving these tickets away just to get the bums on seats, are we really building the legacy that the FA will be talking about for the future? We want to build future fans. Is it giving a free ticket away actually going to encourage people to come back again in the future do you not want to make a consumer who is going to put their money on the table no i agree but then i also it again this is something i write about a year of the robin about the efforts that were made in charlton because the thing with charlton they always talk about this like lost generation of supporters Mm. when charlton athletic were not playing at their own ground in the valley they were playing away at um, Selhurst Park and Upton Park for very long-winded reasons, basically. But they say that they lost a generation of fans in those, like I think it was about eight years they were not at their, their own stadium for. 
And because, you know, you have a lot of competition in London for, like, good clubs <laughs> you can support. Like, you know, you've got Arsenal, you've got Chelsea, you've got you've got Spurs, obviously. You've got a variety of clubs you could support that are going to give you a lot more joy than Charlton Athletic ever will. But they made, like, real efforts to try and get people in and, and they had a kind of strategy of, like, well, all right, you support Spurs, but you can't afford to go to Spurs, can you? <laughs> but you can afford to go to... Charlton so why not have that as your second club for example and I sort of wonder if you do get someone say you give a a whole school tickets to a women's football match at Old Trafford they go they have a really really cracking time and they go right I want to go back and see that team again and relive that experience again it was brilliant whereas like you know no disrespect to Brentford but the, the draw of Brentford Community Stadium is is not the same no. as the draw of the Etihad or the Emirates. or So I can't help but think that their ambitions weren't great. Yeah, I suspect it was a somewhat cautious approach. But I guess, well, I wonder whether they're also thinking about the Euros that England hosted 17 years ago, 2005, which was just kind of in the northwest, mm. when, again, it was a very odd array of stadia and it wasn't perhaps as well supported as one would hope. Now, I would expect that it's rather more thought through this time. There's much more kind of infrastructure in place for uh, forward planning and for assessing the success of these matches and making sure that people are attending and turning these people who are at the matches into long-term fans. We'll have to wait and see. I mean, I think we're we, you know, we're seeing that these matches are already selling out. Mm. So it does suggest that it was probably rather more cautious than they might have needed to be. But... I do understand the reasons for going with the smaller stadia rather than necessarily a, a, a whole load of bigger stadia, but I think there might have been a happy medium. Yeah, your twenty thousand, your thirty thousand seaters as a as a standard rather than perhaps too small. Look, why not the valley for God's sake? Twenty seven thousand. That's not bad, is it? What next then, Carrie? What next for women's football? I would hope that we're going to have a wonderful tournament this summer. I am hoping that England might win something. It is about time. It is about time. They've got one of the best coaches in the world now. It's, it's turning into a bit of the uh, the men's equivalent of the golden generation a little bit in that there's always kind of talk of being there or thereabouts. Finishing third, finishing fourth, yeah, great. But, you know, it's not a trophy, is it? Let's go and win something. Let's do it this summer. There you go. So you come back to this subject, you know, some time down the line and and you want to write about the history of women's football now in the future Mm. that is who do you see in the modern game now who you think is going to be like important in the future oh that's a great question obviously you know you've mentioned her already but Emma Hayes is going to be kind of probably the leading one from the, the coaching side of things but I also think Kelly Chambers the Reading coach she kind of gets on with things quite quietly. She's not quite as high profile as you know, Hope, Hope Powell or, or Hayes, but she's been there a long time and Reading are a decent little setup with, with her guidance. So I think she'll be an interesting one to talk to in 10 years time to get her reflection. And of course, you've got the people who have been kind of running the women's game as it's become professionalised. Obviously, Kelly Simmons at the FA is is the key one. And then we have a significant cohort 
going into the media. Again, Alex Scott is the mm. most high, high profile one, but Lucy Ward has been there for a very long time as well, talking about uh, the men's game as well. So, and, and Sue Smith as well, have also been kind of long-term pundits on the men's game. So yes, I think it'll be an interesting perspective coming back to today's era in 10 years time, where we've got this kind of crossover section of professionalised women's football and women being allowed to talk about men's football. Imagine. Imagine. Carrie, you've written a squillion books about women's football. Is there anything left to write about? What's what's next on your agenda? Oh, I have an idea that is currently percolating in my little brain. So hopefully, if you come back to me after the Euros, there might be an actual idea and some actual news. Mm. That was quite... That's quite mysterious of me, wasn't it? No, I, liked I liked it. it. I like the mystery. Carrie, Unsuitable for Females is available to buy now. Where can we follow you on social media? You can follow me on Twitter at Carrie Sparkle, although I am trying to cut down my Twitter time now, but I still am there every so often. Or on Instagram, where I am pretty much every day at Carrie Sparkle123. And I'll just quickly tell you that my book, The Year of the Robin, is also available now. <laughs> it's a very good book Carrie thank you so much for joining me as ever it has been an absolute pleasure to chat thank you so much standard issue for all women